Today on episode number 338, Dr. Douglas Haynes joins me to talk about inclusive excellence. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today's guest, Dr. Douglas Haynes, is Vice Chancellor for Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at the University of California, Irvine. He is also the Chief Diversity Officer at UCI and its Medical Center. Dr. Haynes leads UCI's quest to be a national model of inclusive excellence for its nearly 30,000 undergraduates, 7,000 graduate students, and 16,500 faculty and staff. He oversaw the creation of the Office of Inclusive Excellence in 2016 and was founding member of UCI's Department of African American Studies in 1996, where he still teaches to this day. Recently, he led the launch around the campus's Black Thriving Initiative an ambitious and groundbreaking approach that recognizes and responds to anti-blackness as an existential threat to the university's mission. Dr. Haynes is a recognized thought leader on the topics of equity, diversity and inclusion, anti-blackness and racism, free speech, confronting extremism, modern medicine and race and organizational change. A values-driven researcher, educator, and leader for institutionalized inclusive excellence, he's committed to fostering an environment that maximizes every student and faculty member's capacity to be their best and most authentic selves. Doug, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you, Bonnie, for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity. I didn't tell you this before we started interviewing, but I actually used to work at your institution at the University of California, Irvine, and I still hold it so near and dear to my heart. You're doing such incredible things in every discipline I could possibly think of, and I'm just so honored that you could join me for today's interview. Oh, thank you for having me. You know, it's always gratifying to know that there's a strong UCI connection. Yep, still have some friends over there. And in fact, some friends that I've met through the podcast, so I feel oh, like wow. it, things come full circle, don't they? It's kind of wild. So I, when I was looking through your background, I could not help but notice that one aspect of your research has been around representations of disease and illness in the mass media. And the first question I wanted to ask you is, what on earth as a researcher is that like for you during the times of COVID? You know, thank you for that, that question, because I'm finding that it is very relevant. Uh, just to give an example, that WHO, the World Health Organization, changed its disease naming protocol several years ago, but they initially referred to the coronavirus as the Wuhan coronavirus. And Actually, that is not a best practice because it tends to stigmatize the region, the people. And in one study I looked at, the use of the term Ebola 
which was a pan, not a pandemic, but an epidemic in West Africa several years ago. And what's interesting about that is that Ebola refers to a tributary of the Congo River. And so in naming a disease, however convenient, uh, however trying to give it an identity, some specification, the problem is, is that you stigmatize places and people, which is why when the president refers to coronavirus as the China virus, it's deeply insulting and actually is counterproductive. And as the historian, you know, I studied this in relationship to Ebola, but there's many other examples, such as the Spanish flu. What people uh, should know is that the Spanish flu was designated that name, not because the flu originated in Spain, but because that's what investigators decided to designate it. And the flu itself emerged in the Midwest, not in Spain. Uh, And so those are just two examples of the relevance of naming and disease and how it can stigmatize and ultimately cause people to fear. I am positive that another aspect that you think a lot about is the ways in which those most vulnerable in our society are disproportionately negatively impacted. And we both live in the state of California, and they recently changed our tiers and how they designate them. The tiers, which for people that don't live here would would maybe not be familiar, but certain industries and certain businesses can open at, depending on which of these four tiers. And so many of us wish that the colors were like a stoplight so at least we could remember them (laughs) but as of this recording we're sort of in a in the third lowest of four tiers and so a lot of Mm -hmm. people are looking forward to in the county where we live you know having more opportunities to open but i know you share this these values with me that we don't want to reopen and have Mm -hmm. it be way way worse for certain members of our population because those are the people that are most likely to have these negative effects. So um, that's another aspect of it, too, for us to be thinking about. I found for, for many of my students, they're thinking a lot more with a collectivist mindset than many times they were sort of raised with more of an individualistic. And that's sort of been some interesting conversations we've been having. Well, that's an interesting uh, observation. And I agree with it, in part because how we respond to this public health crisis is a direct reflection of how we work together. And so the expression, we're all in this together, is not only an aspiration, but actually a public health strategy. And I think, you know, to the extent that there's a silver lining, more people understand how interdependent we are and how individual choices can have unintended consequences. Yeah. We're going to be exploring today two broad themes, and they are, I think, in contrast, I don't know if they're opposites, you'll be able to educate me about this as we go, but the idea of reactive diversity versus inclusive excellence. And we're going to get to hear a little bit from your life and ways that you have been touched by each of these themes. And then we're going to look at the institutions and what our institutions of higher learning are doing around these things. And then finally, we'll look at individual faculty members and how we may inadvertently have some 
ways we're not living up to our own ideals and then ways that we can. But let's, let's start with you and your mm-hmm. life. And I'd love to hear a time in your life when you've experienced what you would now call reactive diversity. Yeah, um, I'll use an example and then we can sort of discuss it. I remember when I was in college, many moon ago, and I was being considered for spending my senior year at Oxford University, at University College. And my college had a competitive process for this. And, you know, I prepared, I submitted my application. And during the interview, a well-meaning faculty member asked me if I was aware that there were a few Black people in England. And he asked the question in part because he wanted to be sure that I was equipped and prepared to navigate this new environment. And so, of course, I said, yes, uh, I'm you know, not only qualified and prepared, but I'm interested for any opportunities that might come before me. And I, I illustrate that as a type of reactive diversity for the following reasons. You know, reactive diversity refers to the uncertainty about diversity within an organization, right? And so in this example, this faculty member was clearly aware that I was Black. It was pretty obvious. But he was not aware about how I fit within this college or within Oxford University or within the world, right? And so instead of learning more, he asked a set of relatively, I would say, superficial questions that were baked with a lot of assumptions. And so it's possible under reactive diversity to be personally committed to diversity, to be well-intentioned, but essentially it kind of reflects just a discomfort with what diversity means to me. How do I relate to people who are diverse? Right. Uh, now, I was ultimately selected, and, and that experience at Oxford made a massive difference in my life. It's one of the major factors that led me to graduate school and where I am now as a professor of modern Europe history at UCI. But, you know, for folks who come from underrepresented or marginal populations, this type of experience is not uncommon. It's often described as a type of implicit bias unconscious, unintended. But I think that more and more universities and colleges across the country really have been articulating in value statements, in offices and programs, initiatives and events, a real commitment to diversity. That's a good start. It's where we need to grow is our relationship to diverse communities and populations so that we can be not only intentional, but also help to recalibrate the social organizations we call colleges and universities. When you say that, I'm curious about if this has to be a progression. I'm not asking the question very well, but there's a starting point. And what I think I heard you talking about is, you know, there's a lack of diversity. There's there's a lack of, and, and so the first person coming in is by its very nature going to wind up being the token or at least perceived as that, you know? And so is it, is it that we have to work our way through mm-hmm. reactive to somewhere else or would it even be possible to not start with that? I don't, 
I think that's an excellent question. I think in some sense, we've been on a path in higher education in the United States, I would say since 1964 and the Civil Rights Act that mandates colleges and universities receiving federal funding can't discriminate. And on top of that, there's a more concerted effort to integrate colleges. And so there are levels of awareness that you rightly point out on this spectrum. And I think most institutions are at a stage, I would say on a four-point spectrum, I would say most institutions are either point one or two. You know, one, statement on diversity, be really working to recruit students, may even have an office of student affairs or uh, minority affairs, trying to diversify the workforce, uh, both employee, uh, faculty employees and staff employees. And I think that's pretty much the landscape. But the real challenge, though, is that it's inconsistent. So you may have, for example, diverse students, but they might not necessarily fear that, they're, that they belong. You may have a diversity statement, but you know, beyond that, there might not be any relevant attention in the curriculum. And furthermore, you may have all of that, but in the leadership, on the trustees. And so what I'm trying to get at is that, you know, organizations, colleges and universities, they have to not only be, you know, research institutions, educational institutions, but learning organizations to ask four questions. Who is our community? Are they thriving? How do we know? And how can we improve? And I think those four questions, to the extent that they are a part of the culture of an organization, will allow us to see people as bringing their whole selves, right? And so there is, I think, a type of a spectrum of organizational change in consciousness. And some are at the midpoint and a few are at point three, but no one is at four yet. Mm. Would you share about a time in your life or your education when you experienced what you would call inclusive excellence? You know, I, in many ways, I experience it every day. Um, you know, partly I think it's because of my role on campus as a vice chancellor for equity, diversity, inclusion. But you know, one powerful memory that I have when I was teaching a course in modern European history, and this was in, I would say, the late 90s, I paused for a second right before the start of the course and looked out on the sea of students. And what struck me was how richly diverse they were. And I thought about when I was an undergraduate between 1981 and 1985, and then I was the only person of color in a class on modern Europe. And so in some sense, that experience uh, when I was teaching showed me that, wow, our campus student population is becoming so diverse that they're curious about the world, including learning about Europe, right? And third, that we're equipping students to be truly global citizens. And I think that's always a very powerful and gratifying experience. And so that, that, that stands out. I think what also stands out is our development of an inclusive excellence action plan for UCI, 
that we launched in January of this year, not knowing there was a pandemic, but that whole process of listening and learning, meeting people where they are, trying to figure out how we can better equip ourselves to advance this idea of a campus community where people expect equity, support diversity, practice inclusion, and honor free speech. So those are two things that sort of stick out in my mind most immediately. Well, that's a perfect segue for us then to now look at some of the things that are happening within institutions. Let's begin with reactive diversity, which we spoke about a little bit before, but could you think of some other examples of ways in which institutions have these values, or at least they've articulated them, mm-hmm. but they're mm-hmm. missing the mark because their diversity efforts are more reactive? Yeah. And I think that what we're really learning now, particularly in the wake of the national reckoning about anti-Blackness, is that you have to have a whole university or a whole organization response. And so one thing that we have developed and uh, rolled out as part of our UCI Black Thriving initiative is to provide tools where people can begin to take greater accountability for confronting anti-Blackness by understanding what it is, right? So most people... I take as just a bedrock assumption, are person committed to diversity. Many people want to do something besides click, like, post, right? They want to be in a community. They don't want to feel that they're isolated. And so one thing we've done is develop a set of modules about anti-Blackness in the United States that's open to staff employees, faculty employees, undergraduates, and graduate students The first looks at the black protest tradition to answer the question, why are people protesting in the streets? And the second is the structures and mechanisms that devalue black people. Why is it necessary to protest that black lives matter in the 21st century? And what's important about this is that it's open to members of the campus community to learn together, right? It's enriched by reading and viewing materials. It's a moderated conversation that I lead. And so people are able to feel comfortable asking basic questions. And we, so we embrace making mistakes because that's what learning is about. What ways do you foster community for those who may, may not always appreciate being parts of conversations like that because we're always taking care of the people that aren't haven't quite got it down yet versus those that just need an opportunity to express their anger, their depression, their just the yeah. ways in which they're just grieving. And, and yeah. Bonnie, that's, that's powerful. And I really appreciate the language that you use. I think that it's a combination of actions and aspirations. And so in the, in the wake of the, protests in the summer, we developed the UCI Black Thriving Initiative to do two things. One is to say, we're going to confront anti-Blackness as an institutional imperative. So we see anti-Blackness as an existential threat to our mission as a university. And so in doing that, we acknowledge that anti-Blackness damages people's sense of belonging to a community, that 
We can't maximize our research and teaching capacity. We can't really call ourselves a public institution, right? That commitment, I think, is particularly powerful because I think it names something that many people in the Black community experience, right? Instead of saying, oh, it's bad apples, oh, it's rare, it's exceptional, because it's not just a matter of life at, at UCI, or for that matter, any college or university, it's in society at large. You know, it's not just the spectacular recorded evidence of a police killing someone, right? But it's also the casual, implicit, subtle things that really create this sense of exclusion, right? And so I'm not saying that this solves everything, but at least we've named what we believe the challenge is and have created a pretty ambitious set of interventions to address it to the extent that we can. And uh, Bonnie, I have to tell you that this is a, a dialectical process that in some sense, we're going to learn and change, learn and change, learn and change. And so for some folks who are, who've experienced this, this is our commitment as an institution. And for those who want to do something or just are curious, or who may be skeptical, we want to create opportunities to learn so that they can channel their, their desire to do something. I'm going to be linking to so many of the resources you've already mentioned. Your website's a phenomenal resource for people. And, that, and what you just shared about reminded me of your act for inclusion, the hashtag act for inclusion. <laughs> and right there on the website that anybody could go and view, it just starts out with, I think, I, I don't have it right in front of me, but just saying hello. You know, starting with these small stakes things <laughs> and then really building up the commitment and the awareness. And you talked about naming things and <laughs> kind of that recognition. If I'm not used to doing this kind of work, then realizing that the small stuff, I mean, you're talking about microaggressions and bias and that can show up in really small ways that yeah. is like water and rock, you know, carving out what it's like to live with systemic racism for one's entire life and but then to start to feel because if you just start sometimes I guess with issues where you just it's just enormous and that oh. requires them to completely give up every sense of identity and it's like no that's not quite the way learning typically works because if we're so fearful we're not going to be able to learn anything new yeah and, and totally and I really appreciate that Bonnie because I think part of this derived this the initiative derives from being a teacher being an educator that it's unreasonable to expect a student to show up knowing material about week 10 in week one, right? I think it's important, too, that even though people have different roles in the university or college, they can all learn, right? I mean, that's what I so appreciate about our, uh, the format of our modules is that people's role does not prevent them from listening and learning and sharing and growing and making connections and to know that they're part of a community, that they're not isolated, right? That's, so, so when you mention the example of saying hello, the stakes aren't as high, you're right. But to the extent that you have a community, you feel, I think, a little better at doing a little more. It reminds me of 
learning what it's like to be a good citizen. But once you really, you were talking about protests. And so what I have learned from others is that protests can look a lot of different ways. And if you tell me there's only one way, I kind of can't see my place in it quite yet. But when I look at the other ways that we can be part of protest, it's uh, really powerful. And, And then once we take those small steps and then realize, oh, I have a little bit more courage that actually felt like this, this is a good thing that I did. And then we can build up to even more courageous things. Yeah, and, it's, and at the bot, at the base of it, it, it's it's learning because I think learning is a process of growth as much as career advancement. And I think that we change to the extent that you know we're a part of the learning process uh, and are recognized and, and validated. And it takes time, but I think if you put in the time. I think your community is more resilient. Let's take ourselves into the classroom. And it may not literally be a place that we sit inside of a building these days. It may be a classroom that takes place online, but the community of learning. Mm -hmm. And would you share some examples of where reactive diversity shows up in a classroom? Well, reactive diversity may show up, for example, when a student records in an evaluation that the faculty member put me on the spot and I felt uncomfortable, right? And, you know, the faculty member might think, you know, I just was trying to engage the student and wasn't trying to sort of make this student feel uncomfortable, but the student comment in some sense reflects this concept of stereotype threat that Claude Steele developed with his co-authors several years ago, where if you're from a stigmatized, marginalized population, that when you're in performance-based settings, you feel that if you make a mistake, you're conforming a stereotype, not just getting the, the, the answer wrong. And so the reaction of the faculty member, oh, I didn't mean anything by that, I'm sorry, you know, that's a type of classroom situation that leads two people to misrecognize each other. And so the more that we learn, the less likely that it is that we will repeat this. And then would you share about in those same spaces what it looks like when inclusive excellence shows up? Well, I mean, here's another example. So UCI, and I would say the vast majority of college and universities, they have high expectations in, in part because students bring high expectations of achievement. And unfortunately, what can happen is that students may make decisions about who contributes to success more than others. And so there's a lot of research that shows that student discussion groups or work groups that are self-selected can actually contribute to excluding some groups and not others. And so one example of, of inclusive excellence is really creating a, a set of guidelines about how to create these informal groups and teams. Because what you're doing is that in laying out those guidelines, you're modeling what inclusive excellence is, that you're trying to equip people to see the whole person, assume strengths rather than deficits. Ask yourself, 
is this small number of people sufficient? Can we broaden the group, right? Do we have to hoard information? Can we share it, right? The last question I wanted to ask you before we get to the recommendation segment, I feel a little bit hesitant because I can recall Ta-Nehisi Coates being asked this on so many times about hope. And he's like, I don't have hope. So I'm always like a little hesitant, but you, fe- you seem like a hopeful guy. So I'm going to, I'm going to throw caution to the wind and ask you a question <laughs> about hope. You know, that there's a question people ask that says, you know, what keeps you up at night? I want to ask the opposite of you right now. What, what is helping you sleep better at night? Which I realize I'm asking this during <laughs> a really rotten time for a whole bunch of reasons, but is there anything that's helping you sleep? What's helping me sleep is knowing that each day there are thousands of people who are going to be getting up in the morning whose principal task is to welcome and support our students. And it gives me hope because over half of our students at UCI are first generation. 40% are Pell eligible. One in four are Latino. We're an Asian American, Native American, Pacific Islander serving institution. I mean, that gives me hope because when UC was founded in 1868, it wasn't founded with this type of diversity in mind. But look at us now, right? And so that gives me hope. And I guess I'll put it another way that I see myself as helping to prepare the campus for other people. And I can't do it by myself. I can only make a small contribution to that larger effort. But that's what gives me hope, even during this very challenging period. This is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And this one made me cry the other day. So I know this book has been out for a while. It's uh, by Barack Obama, and it's called Of Thee I Sing, A Letter to My Daughters. It is a children's book. And again, it's been out. In fact, our kids, their school library had sent it home. They do these book bags. And so my husband had already read it. I don't know if he read it to our son or to our daughter, but I got to read it to the kids the other day. And what makes it so distinct is that it focuses on, I think it's 12 or 16 different people in history. And Mm -hmm. so they're getting to learn about a lot of people from a lot of different parts of the world and ways that they contributed. But there's always this refrain on the left-hand side of the page. And it was so fun how just naturally each one of our kids would get excited that they could be the one to read. And I'll just read some of them. So it says, have I told you that you are creative? And so then he tells, Barack tells the story of Georgia O'Keeffe and how she helped us see beauty in what is small, the hardness of stone and the softness of feather. And then that refrain comes again. Have I told you that you are smart? Ah. And then he tells the story of Albert Einstein and how he turned pictures in his mind into giant advances in science. Have I told you that you are brave? And then he tells the story of Jackie Robinson, who showed us all how to turn fear to respect and respect to love. He swung his bat with the grace and strength of a lion and gave brave dreams to other dreamers. And on this page, there's a, there's a picture of him. It's beautifully illustrated. 
And my kids said, boy, the people in the background are really mad, mommy. And I said, yes. Do you know why those people were mad? And so we got to talk about that for a little while. Have I told you that you're a healer? And he tells the story of Sitting Bull, a Sioux medicine man. Have I told you that you have your own song? And then Brock tells the story of Billie Holiday. Her voice full of sadness and joy made people feel deeply and add their melodies to the chorus. Have I told you that you are strong? And then he tells the story of Helen Keller. Have I told you how important it is to honor others' sacrifices? And then he tells the story of Maya Lin, who designed the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Wow. Have I told you that you are kind? And he tells the story of Jane Adams who I'm embarrassed to say did not know who that was. So that's one that I need to do some reading so I can learn more about her life. Have I told you that you don't give up? And then he tells the story of Martin Luther King Jr., who taught us unyielding compassion. He gave us a dream that all races and creeds would walk hand in hand. He marched and he prayed and one at a time opened hearts and saw the birth of his dream in us. It's a really wow. good one. It's a good one. Yep. So I'd recommend people pick up, even if you don't have kids or your kids are grown, you got grandkids, you got anybody, you, you just get it for yourself. It's a really, really wonderful, poetic, beautiful work. So, yep. And I'm going to pass well, it over to you now, Doug, for your recommendations. Well, it's anything that you mentioned, Barack Obama, because one book that I've been reading and rereading is Becoming by Michelle Obama. And the reason why I, I read it and reread it is because I love how she frames human development as this process and how she describes how her view of the world changed, right? And I don't know, I just, I guess now that I'm, uh, my two kids are now adults, that I'm fairly advanced in my career. It makes me really appreciate that, that those lessons. Uh, so that's definitely a book that I return to a lot. And it's just, it, it's absorbing uh, how someone who didn't see themselves as the first lady of the United States became on her own terms, right? Learning, making mistakes, but also being proud for our country, right? And so that's, that's something that inspires me that I dip into periodically. There's a other book that I look at, and this is more the historian in me. And so my, my wife gave me for my birthday, this set, a box set of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. I'm a historian. It's an occupational hazard. Sorry. <laughs> and that book, it's a vast book, but over the course of my adult life as an undergraduate, graduate student, throughout my career as a historian, I've encountered parts of this vast corpus of writing. And I have to tell you, Bonnie, I just so enjoyed being able to sit down and read it. In part, it's the, I appreciate it uh, as a writer. I appreciate it as an intellectual. And I also appreciate it in terms of how this idea of decline and fall can happen very insidiously. 
And so, you know, I have a ways to go. It's like six <laughs> books. Oh, God. But it's a great way to fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, it has been such a delight to be connected with you and to get to have these conversations and hear the stories about your life and your work. Thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. Bonnie, thank you for, for having me. And I just want to thank you for doing the work that you do, keeping educators connected and advancing inclusive excellence pedagogy. I'm so thankful to Doug Haynes for joining me for today's conversation on teaching in higher ed. You've given us so much, not just to think about, but to act on. You can visit the show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 338. I'd also love to connect with you on social media. If you're on Twitter, I'm at Bonnie with no E, B-O-N-N-I 208. Would love to connect there. There's also an account for teaching in higher ed. That's T-I higher ed. So you could connect in either or both of those places. And I also encourage you to subscribe to the updates from Teaching in Higher Ed. You can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to seeing you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.